Welcome to the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McNew. I love cocktails and I love the macabre. So every week I'm bringing you a cocktail recipe in history and some ghost stories. So let's get ready to get lit and get scared. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July holiday and the last few weekends. I definitely did. And if you hear fireworks behind me as I'm recording this, like my neighborhood is still celebrating and I actually love this. So, you know, like the Karens are going to complain on like the neighborhood groups, like quit letting off fireworks. My dogs are scared. No, I love them. People are literally spending thousands of dollars to entertain me and I don't have to leave my backyard because we can see them from all over. So if you hear them, I apologize. People are still setting shit off, (laughs) but I did have a nice little break last week and it was nice to not create a new episode. So if you re-listened to the Gettysburg episode, thank you. I appreciate you. And that's such an interesting place that I would love to visit sometime, not just for their haunted history, but their regular history too. It just, it's such a neat place. Yeah, I think I might just re-air that one every 4th of July, or I might tweak it and add some stuff. I'm sure there's more that I could always add to that. But I think that's going to be the ongoing 4th of July week episode because like it runs into my birthday weekend and I'm usually going someplace or doing a million things. So it just doesn't make sense for me to find time to make a new episode. But I do have a brand new one for you today. Last weekend when I was off, me and my husband, we went to Louisville and we did all all the stuff I like doing. (laughs) We did a cocktail class at Jim Beam. It was excellent. We ran by Heaven Hill to the gift shop. We picked up some bottles And we checked out some oddity shops. When we got to um, downtown Louisville, there was a bookshop I wanted to go to called Butcher Cabin Books. And it's a really cool building. They like painted blood drips and stuff on the outside of it. They only sell horror books or like, I don't know, odd books. But there's so many little oddity shops on the road by it. There's so many little oddity shops on that road and just interesting places. We just popped into a lot of little shops and had a good time just strolling through there. Then we went to Main Street because we were going to go to a tasting at Buzzard's Roost. It was excellent, by the way. So check out their new little micro distillery and tasting room uh, when you get a chance. But before we did that, we went to a place called Caulfield's, which I had heard of, but I wasn't sure where it was. They are like a Halloween superstore, 365. All they do is Halloween and spooky stuff. They're kind of across the road from Peerless. So they're like not really on Whiskey Row, but they're still there on Main Street quick little walk and they have a giant bat you can take a photo with. It's a cool place. I just, I had the best day. We did all my spooky stuff and we did all my bourbon stuff. And like my husband's a champ for just freaking going with me. He's really secretly into it. He just doesn't want to admit it yet. But (laughs) so anyways, after we went to Buzzards Roost, we had a great tour with Tony. He was freaking excellent. And all of their whiskeys are so damn good. We picked up a bottle. I think we got the French Oak Cask. I think that's the one we bought. I don't remember. I'll have to go look at my shelf later. But anyways, after that, we headed on over to 4th Street in Old Louisville, where we joined a ghost tour. And I know that I've covered Louisville on this podcast before. In fact, it was the first ever episode of Highly Spirited Podcast. And it's actually still one of the most popular, so I'm glad people are listening to that still. But in that episode, I kind of generalized Louisville as a whole and like mostly talked about their hotels, Waverly Hills, and just really their well-known haunts. But the walking tour through Old Louisville was so insightful, and we got to see some beautiful Victorian homes, as well as some pretty gnarly ghost stories. So I wanted to share some of those here. Our tour guide, Quentin, was wonderful, so shout out to them if they're listening. 
I definitely added bourbon to my iced coffee before we went on this walk. They had us meet kind of in front of this coffee shop. And I'm not a coffee girl, but I do like iced coffee that doesn't taste like coffee. And we had all these bottles in the back of the car. So I was like, Chris, we can. We, let's just let's spike our drink. Let's make this more fun. It was already going to be fun, but, you know, your girl likes a drink. I like a walking drink. I like a to-go drink. So we made our own. And we weren't obnoxious on this tour, I promise. We kind of just kept to ourselves. But I had a had a to-go drink. I was hearing ghost stories. I really had a damn good day. <laughs> so I was boozy and boozy, very much staying on brand. But this tour was so great, and I kept notes in my phone. Like, I probably looked like a jackass texting people, but I was really just putting notes in my phone so I could remember all the stories and relate them here to you guys. So that's what I'm doing today. But before we get that, we need a cocktail, and it's not just trunk bourbon thrown into your iced coffee, okay? So we all know Louisville is the alleged home of the old-fashioned. It was allegedly created at the Pendennis Club. Since I've already covered that and the mint julep, which is, you know, tied right in there with Louisville as well, I had to find another Louisville-adjacent cocktail and stumbled across one called the Tombstone. In some things I found, it was called the Louisville Tombstone, and... In other ones, it was just called the Tombstone, so, so I looked at multiple sources. But I'm guessing it's called the Louisville Tombstone because it's quite similar to an Old Fashioned, except that it's made with rye instead of bourbon, and it's shaken in a cocktail shaker instead of being built in a, in a rocks glass. Out of the sources I found, it really has nothing to do with Louisville, but I'm guessing they're calling that calling it that because it ha it's literally just an old fashioned but made different. But it actually was created in the Bronx, New York, in a cemetery. So it's still appropriate. I did a ghost tour. Let's talk about a cemetery too. So this cocktail was created at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, New York. The reason the cemetery was picked was because biographer David Wondrick brought a group of writers to visit the grave of Jerry Thomas, who we may know as the father of mixology. Wondrick brought along with him a cocktail shaker, 13 glasses, and a bottle of rye whiskey, bitters, and simple syrup. They all visited the grave, shook up the cocktail, like they really passed the shaker around and everybody shook it, kind of was like a little ceremony. And alas, the tombstone was born. But anyways, the Woodlawn Cemetery is also known as home to the Jazz Corner, which is the final resting place of jazz greats Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Lionel Hampton, and Coleman Hawkins. They really have nothing to do with this cocktail, but being jazz guys and spending their lifetime in clubs, I'm sure they can also appreciate a good whiskey cocktail as well. Woodlawn does sound like a fascinating cemetery to visit full of fascinating people. So if you ever get the chance, go see them. Go maybe make a new cocktail. But anyways, let me give you the directions so you can make your own tombstone at home. You're going to need a cocktail shaker, fill it with ice, and then add two ounces of your choice of rye whiskey, a fourth ounce of Demira simple syrup. Demira is a little bit better than regular syrup. It's just a better sugar. And then two to three dashes of Angostura bitters. Going to shake it till your shaker is cold and then strain it into a coupe glass or a martini glass. And then you can garnish with a lemon peel. Enjoy that. And I will be right back with this quick break and we'll talk about some haunts of Old Louisville. Hey guys, did you know I have a new book out? It's called Drinking with the Stars, Cocktails for the Zodiac. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a fun little book that pairs a cocktail with each zodiac sign. So inside is a little blurb about your star sign and then the cocktail I think best pairs with it. It's really fun to go through and make these cocktails. So check it out, it's available on Amazon and I can post a link in the show notes. Cheers.
back. So I'm going to kind of recap this walking tour with you. So we started on our group tour on the corner of 4th and Ormsby Avenue near the Filson Historical Society. And we started walking. And don't ask me which direction because I'm pretty directionally challenged 90% of the time. But we ended up in front of a church that had a gorgeous front entrance featuring columns and wide, up, wide beautiful steps that like covered the whole front of the building. The church is called the First Church of Scientists, which they were very quick to tell us had nothing to do with Scientology. We were informed the steps of this church are haunted by a pacing ghost named Miss G, or otherwise known as the Lady of the Stairs. Miss G was a young lady when she died of a broken heart. Actually, she died of the flu, but I think the heart thing, she might have survived it if her heart wasn't broken. Miss G was a daughter of the Gainwright family who were quite prominent at the time. The expectation was for their daughters to marry and to marry well. Miss G was 18 and hadn't found herself a proper suitor, at least not to her family standards. She had met a soldier from the nearby Camp Zachary Taylor, who she had fallen madly in love with. Her parents did not approve as he did not come from money and couldn't provide for her the way they wanted. She didn't care. She loved this soldier and they, and they would both sneak out at night, her from her family's home, him from camp, and they would meet at the stairs of the First Church of Scientists. They would sit and talk for hours and hours and just fell more and more in love each night. The family decided it was time to marry their young daughter off and found a man of substantial means in his 40s who they wanted her to marry. And I don't know about you, but at 18, a man in his 40s was ancient and gross, and it didn't matter how much money he had. Miss G had uh, similar feelings. She wanted to marry her soldier. So they concocted a plan to elope together. They would meet on the church stairs as they always did, but then they would hop on a train to Chicago, get married, and just start new lives together. So on the agreed upon night, Miss G shows up, a little bag full of belongings she couldn't live without. So she shows up and she waits, and she waits, and she waits so long she starts pacing back and forth, just one column to one column along the top of those stairs. And she waits some more, and her soldier never shows up. She's feeling disappointed at best, confused and heartbroken at worst, but it's almost sunrise. He's clearly not coming, and she'll need to sneak back into her parents' house before they wake up. So Miss G takes herself home in tears, wondering why the love of her life just jilted her. The truth is, he didn't abandon her, and he had every intention of showing up and running away with her but he had contracted the Spanish flu and couldn't leave the barracks. So he kind of got quarantined there. There was no way he was getting out. He did die at Camp Zachary Taylor of the Spanish flu. And days later, a heartbroken Miss G also contracted it and succumbed to it as well. She never found out before she passed that he had also passed. She had no idea that he died and that's why he didn't show up. So she can still be seen pacing these stairs waiting for him. Our tour guide mentioned the thought that her pacing may just be residual energy and not her actual ghost, and maybe their spirits found each other and reconnected in the afterlife, and I just think that's such a beautiful thought. The residual energy does make a lot of sense to me, though. She was so heartbroken, and that's such a strong emotion, so maybe it did imprint what she was feeling on those stairs. And it's likely just a replay of a scene instead of her showing up nightly. So I hope they did find each other in the afterlife and they're living their real happy ever after. 
After this sad little tale, we turned around and looked at the Filson Historical Society, which appears to be an old brick mansion. The mansion has served multiple purposes over the years, first as a home to the Ferguson family, then as a mortuary, now as the home of the Historical Society, as well as the grounds. The Historical Society built a new building behind it that they utilize more now, but they moved boxes, belongings, and documents from the mansion to the new building, and this may have angered someone, as papers and other items often fly around the room on their own as if some unseen force is just tossing them about in a fit of frustration. They believe the spirit's name is Sally, and they don't know who Sally is or where she came from, but she's the only name they've heard. We then make our way on down 3rd Street and stopped in front of a beautiful Victorian home. Like, let me tell you, every home on this street is gorgeous, okay? They're all Victorian. They're all freaking just stunning. But this one is unique. This home was unusual in its build as part of the porch jutted out further than the other half. So if you were on the porch sticking out the furthest, you couldn't see onto the porch behind you and vice versa. The porch in the back was the same way where if you're sitting on that porch, you couldn't see into the porch in front of you. And this design was on purpose. Most homes on 3rd Street at this time were single family homes and this was the first one built as a duplex. Neighbors weren't happy about this as duplexes often mean renters. Renters often mean lower property values, but this wasn't quite the case for this duplex. A man named Mr. Boeing was building this home, and he was quite well-to-do, but he was getting up there in age. He also happened to have two daughters in their 30s who had not yet married. And oh my god, can you imagine? Two old ladies in their 30s unmarried? Like, what a fucking tragedy. <laughs> Anyways, Mr. Boeing worried for his girl's future. If he passed, he wanted them to have a home. He thought they could just live together, but the sisters truly despised each other. And they told their father in no uncertain terms that they would not be residing together. His solution to this was to build a house as a duplex. He sighed for each daughter. And that was not good enough for them either. They had each side built opposite because they didn't even want to share a bedroom or living room wall. So they were supposed to be identical. And they were like, oh, no, my headboard is not going next to the same wall hers is. So they, they kind of had them flipped. The one porch juts out because they insisted on not seeing each other when they sat in their rocking chairs. I, I truly dream of being this goddamn petty. It's fantastic. <laughs> so their father obliged. And that's why this home has such unique architecture. The house address is 1324 and 1326 3rd Street. And if you look closely at the rocking chairs on the porches, you may see them rocking all by themselves. It's believed the Boeing sisters' petty little asses are still sitting on their separate porches, just rocking away for eternity. Down the street a bit and across it sets another beautiful home. 1355 3rd Street has steps leading up to it from to its great porch from the street. The porch is flanked by columns and two floor-to-ceiling windows that are just gorgeous. This home also features a rose garden in the back. This home was formerly owned by party boy Gilmore Speed, I believe sometime maybe in the 1920s. Gilmore was known for his lavish parties and for showing ladies his beautiful rose garden. Gilmore took off to London on a buying trip. He was kind of like into antiques and antique dealing, so he flew off to London. Well, he shipped himself off to London to go buy some more antiques. But while he was there, he accidentally stubbed his toe and it became infected with gangrene. And as things did back then, that is how he died. 
Did you know that's also how Jack Daniels died? Like the real Jasper Daniels. He kicked a safe, his toe got infected, and that's what killed the man that makes some Tennessee whiskey. Anyways, Gilmore's family wanted his body back so that he could be properly buried in their family plot. And it makes sense, except getting him back was quite the excursion. He was embalmed and prepped in London, but put on a ship with ice, packed around him, and sent back. But you know a ship ride takes about two weeks, give or take? (laughs) So that ice probably wasn't making it the entire trip, and embalming can only do so much. When the ship arrived in New York, he still had to be transported back to Louisville. So add another week at least to that, Gilmore's body was in pretty rough shape when he arrived back home. But never fear, they had these wonderful things called cooling tables. They thought they could just display him on and all would be fine for the services. But this was August in Louisville. And I don't know if you've ever been to Louisville in August, but the humidity is wild. Nevertheless, they plopped his body right on that cooling table in front of the rose garden window and went on with it. And I can't imagine how bad that must have smelled. Like, it couldn't have been a good experience for anyone involved. But now it's said if you happen to look into the rose garden through that window, you might see your reflection as you would expect to in a window. But it's not your face or your body in its current state. You're going to see yourself, but you're going to see yourself as decaying and rotting. So view at your own risk, I suppose. After this home, we started walking and every home in the street, like I said, stunning. My husband and I were plotting ways to become millionaires so that we can move into one of them. (laughs) Their porches alone are worth it. So after this, we turned onto 4th Street and happened upon Louisville's very own murder house. This one you may be familiar with. Louisville's murder house is located at 1435 4th Street and has been featured on numerous true crime documentaries and podcasts, as well as being the inspiration for a wonderful book called Dark Room in Glitterball City. Side fact, did you know that Louisville was referred to as Glitterball or Mirrorball City? And it's because they were at one time the largest manufacturer of disco balls. But back to the house, it became well known because of the murder of James Carroll. The home at this time was owned by Jeffrey Munt and his partner Joseph Bannis. And this wasn't that long ago, guys. This was like 2010-ish, okay? Which, I mean, I know was 13 years ago, but it doesn't seem that long. So yeah, it was owned by Jeffrey and his partner Joseph, and all seemed well. They had good jobs, but they liked to party. The partying may have gotten a little bit out of hand as they met Jamie, James, we'll call him Jamie, who became their meth dealer. There are also rumors that they may have gotten into dealing meth themselves and that they may have had a bit of a love triangle with Jamie, and he ended up dead, cut up, put into a Rubbermaid container, and then buried in the basement of the Mutt and Bannis Victorian home where he wasn't found until seven months later. Both Jeffrey and Joseph, they pointed their fingers at each other, but it just all falls apart when they get to court. And if you want to know about this, it was all over the media. It was called the Pink Triangle Murder by the press at that time. It's it's not hard to find anything more detailed about how that court case went. Jamie, while he was alive, was also kind of into BDSM clubs and parties, but, you know, to each their own. I'm not judging. But he was also known to wear one of those all-black, head-to-toe latex suits, very similar to the one worn in the first season of American Horror Story. So some people believe that the AHS writers took inspiration from this real-life Louisville murder, but the timelines don't quite work out. Like, AHS's murder house kind of happened before this murder house, but, you know, sometimes life just mimics art instead of the other way around, I guess. That story, James Carroll's murder, is why it's kind of referred to Louisville's own murder house. 
But before that even took place, this home had such a weird, odd history anyways. In the 1920s and 30s, it was used as a hospital. And, you know, being into haunted things as long as I have been, when I hear hospital and something's history, I already know it's just bad news. This case is no different. It was being used as a sanatorium during the Spanish flu, which was just taking Louisville by storm. It was known as the Bush and Banadine Sanatorium and was run by Dr. Banadine and Dr. Bush. Dr. Bush was truly the doctor you wanted to be in the care of. She was kind, considerate, had excellent bedside manner, and truly just wanted to see people get well. Dr. Banadine, on the other hand, kind of treated sick people like science experiments. Creative is being too generous. He just straight up tortured people. Dr. Bush was against all these experiments and believed he was doing more harm than good. She couldn't stop him, so she just left. She wanted nothing to do with it, was not going to be a part of it. So she quit that practice and moved on to greener pastures. Dr. Banadine left to his own devices, only got worse and more harmful. People were dropping like flies and mortuaries and cemeteries were struggling to handle the volume of the deaths. Dr. Banadine thought no reason to bother them with his patients and just started chucking them into the basement when they'd pass. Yep, the same basement Jamie Carroll's body was found in. Then he'd get bored enough with some people when his torture didn't turn out the way he wanted, so he just tossed them in the basement while they were still alive and left them to rot with the piles of already decaying bodies. I really cannot think of a more horrific way to go out. You're just suffering, surrounded by death. My God, that had to be awful. After he was found out, the place was cleaned up and set empty for a bit. A lady named Pauline bought it in the 1960s. And this house was too big and just a lot for her to keep up with, not to mention she was just lonely. So she started allowing renters to move in. And, you know, maybe she didn't have the best screening process. She had some pretty rough tenants, if you could even call them tenants. I'm not sure everybody was actually paying her rent, but more just kind of being squatters and inviting their friends in and having parties. But not just any kind of party. Some of them kind of formed a cult who performed exorcisms in the basement. And I mean, with its already fucked up history, like some weird shit was going on in there. After Pauline and the cult moved out, single families tried to live in the home, but kept hearing and seeing things like shadow figures, or they'd end up having some extremely bad luck after they stayed for a while. The people who bought the house after Carol's murder do not live in it themselves. They rent it out to grad students who only require temporary housing, and they have the hope that only having temporary tenants will make the string of odd happenings and bad luck end with this house. They have no intentions to ever live in it or have full-time, long-term renters. So whatever curse it has, they're trying to break it by just having temporary uh, people in there. After visiting Murder House, we walked down the street a bit and turned a corner into a gorgeous courtyard called St. James Court. I had no idea Louisville had a neighborhood design like this. The courtyards and the homes reminded me of New Orleans, and the square behind it with the fountain reminded me of Savannah. And I won't lie, I'm just awestruck. This place is dreamy. And if I'm ever super rich, I'm moving myself to St. James Court. <laughs> These houses are stunning. Even if like one or two might be haunted, there, I think it's worth it. The one our tour guide pointed out here is affectionately known as the Pink Palace. You might know it as the inspiration for the house in Tim Burton's movie Coraline. It's an almost three-story bubblegum pink Victorian with white trim, and it sits right on the corner. You cannot miss it. But how could something this cheery looking be haunted? 
Well, it turns out the ghost at 1473 St. James Court is a good ghost. The home was originally a casino that maybe had a secret brothel upstairs. After both these businesses ceased to exist, a man named Benjamin Avery bought the home for his family to reside in. Benjamin was a businessman, a great family man, and a good neighbor, always helping people out and was adored by almost everyone who met him. After the Averys passed, the home was sold and turned into apartments. Around the 1970s, a girl named Jenny lived alone in the basement apartment while she was a University of Louisville student. She was baking cookies one evening and the kitchen was hot, but she suddenly felt cold and turned around to see a gentleman about six feet tall with long white hair wearing a fine suit. She wasn't afraid of him, and he quickly disappeared. She was getting ready for a party and decided to take a bath first. She lit some candles and turned out all the lights. Well, she had some extra time, so she just made herself cozy in the bathtub and planned to stay there for a while. But no sooner than she got comfy, she saw the spirit of the tall man in the suit again. And she wasn't afraid of him, but she felt uneasy, so she got out of the bathtub. No sooner than she got out of the bathtub, a brick flew through the bathroom window and landed in the tub, cracking it. It landed right where her head would have been, and she would have been severely injured, if not worse, had she not gotten out. This was a time when thieves would patrol the neighborhood, looking for signs that folks weren't home. With the lights off and candles only, her basement apartment would have looked dark and empty from the outside. The thieves thought it would be an easy target. She flipped on all the lights, and they fled. While later working at a library, Jenny came across some history documents about her former home and stumbled across a photo of its former owner. And lo and behold, the ghost that saved her looked exactly like Mr. Benjamin Avery. He made an appearance later on when new tenants moved in. The wiring in the kitchen had gone bad and he appeared just before a fire started. Everyone got out safely. The people who currently live there have not reported seeing him yet, which is probably a good thing since he seems to come as a warning. And I know if I did see him, I would thank him and I would get the hell out. After we left the Pink Palace, we walked through the square towards a house in what is now known as the Lamplighter District. It was named for the gas lamps that used to need to be lit by hand. Since that's no longer needed and is an obsolete job, there's a bronze statue commemorating a lamplighter, which is pretty cool to see, actually. Across from the gorgeous fountain in the middle of the square sits another gorgeous brick house with a gorgeous front porch. This house burnt at one time in the middle of the winter. There was a grocery delivery boy who got lost in the fire. He apparently had just kind of snuck into the fifth floor to warm up after his deliveries, so no one really knew he was there. But the fire isn't what took his life. Apparently he survived that, but froze to death in the firefighter's water while they tried to put out the flames. So it was so cold, the water was just like freezing to the house and the structure and anything in it, and the poor little boy froze. And I'm not sure which is a worse way to go, whether it's fire or freezing. They both seem just terrible. But the little boy hasn't really left. If you ever find yourself in this rebuilt house and feel an icy little hand grab yours, know it's the little boy and he's totally harmless. He's just looking for some comfort and attention. Diagonal from this house across the square is the Conrad Caldwell House. Maybe it's more of a castle. It's got this gorgeous turret, but regardless, it's used as a museum today. And it's currently home to six known spirits. The two that make themselves the most seen are two former owners, the first being Theopolis Conrad, who was apparently a little jerk in his lifetime. He shows up in a bowler hat, tweed suit, and has a goatee. He's described as being a short, portly little man and is quite rude to guests. 
People have reported being yelled at by him, so he apparently has not changed much in the afterlife, as he was quite rude to neighbors and often yelled at their kids while he was living. The second well-known ghost is a bit more enjoyable, and that is the second owner, Mr. Caldwell. He was a bit more hospitable, and he liked to entertain. He turned the second-story ballroom into a billiards room during his stint in the home. He can often be seen on the balcony off this room enjoying a cigar. And I feel like I would have liked Mr. Caldwell. He seems like a man of leisure. I am into that. (laughs) The other four ghosts have not been identified yet, but do seem to have separate personalities and appear in different ways. We wrapped this tour up with a trek through Central Park, which was lovely. They were doing like a Shakespeare in the Park sort of thing, which was cool to walk by. And we ended this tour at the Witch's Tree. I talked about the Witch's Tree in depth in my first episode about Louisville, but basically some jackasses cut down the tree the witches loved to use as a maypole. Then 11 months later, the city was hit by this devastating tornado, which the witches might have caused. Then a monstrosity of a tree grew out of the stump and it still stands today. People decorate it and respect it. It's covered in beads, toys, trinkets, money, and other items that were meaningful to whoever left them there. People sometimes leave things to pay respect and others to ask for favors. My husband left a $2 bill he just carries around in his wallet and I left some change, 35 cents for my 35th year. And if I knew the tour was going to go by the tree, I would have brought something more meaningful probably, but you know, whatever. I can always go back, I guess. Until next time, please give us a like, a review, tell a friend. I'd appreciate it. Cheers, y'all.